yin. I'll try to remember to end with a super Martin Luther quote. So don't let me forget. That's why my phone is right here. I'm not like checking my stocks, which I don't have anyway. So uh, um, <laughs> none of those. <clears throat> okay. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, our topic this morning is the clarity of Scripture. Um, we are, as you know, because you've all been coming faithfully in a series on Scripture, so we take up the topic of the clarity of Scripture. And within the Reformation tradition, that is the tradition in which we would largely see ourselves in this church, the Reformation tradition, a belief in the clarity of Scripture has always been affirmed and considered important, and rightly so, for whatever allegiance that we might give to the authority of Scripture, it could never really function as authority in our lives if, due to its obscurity, its message were inaccessible or impenetrable. I mean, we might well be ready and willing to receive and act on the directives from the high command, but if the radio transmitter can't give us a clear signal, we're at a loss. Uh, Are we supposed to take the bridge or uh, sit tight and wait for air support? You know, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. I couldn't make it out. Too much static, no clear reception. Well, that will never work. Few believers are willing to deny in principle the authority of the Bible, but often scriptures are functionally denied the final word because it is alleged that its meaning is not plain. Who's to know what it means? The effect is to have its authority blunted, if not altogether abrogated. And whether its supposed lack of clarity results in a confusion that is lamented or perhaps even convenient, who knows? It's intriguing that the stratagem of the serpent was to raise in the mind of Eve doubt as to what God had said. Did God really say For confusion makes defection more likely, even seemingly legitimate. So, clarity, it would seem, is vital for the effective functioning of God's authority. But is the clarity of Scripture actually sustainable? It would seem to be a highly problematic claim. Uh, Some would even say utterly implausible. What? Scripture clear? You must be joking. So consider first what is typically alleged against the claim of clarity for Scripture. So the implausibility of clarity. And while the presumption of the Bible's clarity 
has been a functioning presupposition among the people of God, or at least as long as they have had Bibles or their precursors, the writings of the apostles, it has often, indeed regularly, been challenged. Uh, What have been some of the arguments or observations against clarity? Against clarity. Uh, So first, let's consider some of the traditional arguments. There is, for one, what we might call the challenge of mystery. The challenge of mystery. That is to say that the claim of clarity fails to account for the mysterious, transcendent subject matter of Scripture. This was Erasmus's objection against Luther. I should have had pictures of these folks. Erasmus is a, is a is great, we've got some great woodcuts of Erasmus. One of my he's always wearing an enormous hat because Erasmus, um, his head was so tiny relative to the rest of his body, he feared that in public that would make his high intelligence look unlikely. So he would buy these enormous stuffed hats that would bring his head up to a normal... I don't know why I said that. This is completely off topic, but just an interesting historical thing. Erasmus uh, of Rotterdam. Uh, And this was Erasmus' objection against Luther. Um, uh, Inevitably, parts of the Bible will be opaque uh, because of the very grandeur of their subject matter. Or so alleged... Erasmus, God's ways and purposes are so exalted, how could we hope to comprehend them? And Erasmus appealed here to Romans 11.33 as an example. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. See, Luther? Uh, Or, again, he would appeal in the same vein to Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? You know, these things are, these are inaccessible to us. The claim that we may have clarity on such matters is hubris. Who are we to scan the bosom of the Almighty? Why, says Erasmus, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret of the Lord remains with the Lord. To think we can have God unveiled, clearly disclosed before us, is to reduce God to to distorting dimensions of human comprehension. Okay, so you see the force of that. See the force of that? Uh, So there's the the challenge from mystery. Uh, A second would be the challenge from multiplicity. Challenge from multiplicity. That is, the claim of clarity fails in practice, given the reality of the irreducible multiplicity of all of the interpretations that we have of Scripture. I mean, surely it's self-evident. How can anyone have the chutzpah to claim the scriptures are clear when nobody can agree on what they say? Uh, This was Robert Bellarmine, uh, you know, the great hammer of the reformers. Um, 
And he pointedly taunted the reformers who claimed clarity for scripture. You Protestants can't even agree amongst yourselves. Why, look at all of your in-house squabbles over your understanding of even just those, those, those simplest words of institution, this is my body. Oh, come on. Lutherans say one thing, the Zwinglians say another, Calvin offers a third option. Ah, the profusion of interpretations is dizzying. And who can deny that it is so? Look at the proliferation of denominations who understand the scriptures sufficiently differently to warrant in their minds gathering up into their own group. And you tell me, who's the eye of Romans 7? Or who's the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2? Or what's meant by the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15? Or preaching to the spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3? And we could go on, as you well know. <laughs> this is... This is a real potent and puissant challenge. Finally, uh, it would seem that the claim to clarity is simply misguided. It fails by its own criterion as Scripture itself confesses its own obscurity. To claim clarity for Scripture is not simply to claim more for Scripture than it does for itself, but it is to claim what Scripture explicitly denies. How is it that David in Psalm 119 prays for understanding? Verse 18, open my eyes. Verse 27, let me understand. Verse 34, give me understanding. Verse 73, give me understanding again. Verse 125, give me discernment that I might understand. Again and again and again, asking, I, I, I have to be granted some discernment or else it's impossible for me to understand. Or the disciples on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24, they were at a loss as to how to understand the Old Testament. Or the Ethiopian in his chariot was baffled by the Isaiah scroll. In Acts 8, uh, to Philip's question, remember Philip asked him, do you understand what you were reading? Do you remember what his answer was? I need somebody to... <laughs> exactly. How, how can I unless there's somebody to explain it to me? How could I possibly understand? Yeah. If Scripture's meaning were clear and accessible, such would be unnecessary, surely. And then there is Peter's clear testimony that Paul's epistles contain, quote, some things very hard to understand, 2 Peter 3.16. So these are some of the long-standing challenges and they're pretty forceful, pretty forceful. And, and supplementing these traditional arguments that we've kind of had going on for a long time against clarity are, are those of more recent pedigree, which seem merely to compound the problem 
for any who would make a claim to Scripture's clarity. So, the contemporary intensification. Consider the challenge of what we might call the limitations of language. The limitations of language. The claim that Scripture is clear stumbles and falls because the vehicle in which it's communicated, human language, is notoriously frail and feeble. We all know how prone language is to to misconvey intended meaning. Just ask newlyweds. Is it not clear that communication is completely elusive? Well, for that matter, ask those celebrating their diamond anniversary. Ah, language is really easy to get garbled. To think that clarity is a possible attribute of language is to expect more than it can deliver. As uh, theologian Karl Barth expresses it, Human words need interpretation because, as such, as human words, they are ambiguous. Not usually, of course, in the intention of those who speak, but always for those who hear. So human words are always ambiguous for those who hear. And then, when you throw in the vagaries of translation... I mean, most of us are not reading out of the Greek or the Hebrew. Uh, Well, how much is invariably lost? As the Italian proverb insists, insists, translation is treason. Easy for polyglots to say. (laughs) What are are we supposed to do, though? Um, And then there is the darker modern claim that Assertion of clarity in language is to suppress inherent equivocation and ambiguity. It represents, quote, linguistic cleansing. If you say there's just one clear meaning to this, ah, you're you're a linguistic cleanser akin to the ethnic cleansing of megalomaniacs who try to cleanse races. This is Derrida, you're probably recognizing. And reflects a neurotic fear of, quote, the proliferation of meaning. This is Foucault, as you probably recognize. Are you talking about logical positivism? No, 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 that's that's another. This is is the notion that, that language in itself is a playful, is, is, is a very a playful, dynamic thing. And if we try to fix meaning of language to, to one kind of tack it down like a dead butterfly, you killed the thing. No, 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 no. So there always need to be multiplicity of meanings, a playfulness. Uh, and if you, if, you are, if you are trying to reduce it to one and insist that it just has one clear meaning, you're a linguistic cleanser. Try to cleanse that thing and polish it up in a way which, you know, it's an evocative term. Is it not a linguistic cleanser? You don't, you don't want to, you know, good grief, you know, how to be in the party of those, you know. It's like ethnic cleansers linguistically. You don't want to do that. And, um, you know, who wants to fear, kind of sounds exciting, the proliferation of meaning. Who wants to be scaredy cat about that? Well, maybe we do. Um, so, uh, 
Yeah, and it's 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 pretty. It's a it 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 doesn't just cast you really as as ignorant. This sort of challenge casts you as an evil person. What you're doing is dangerous. It's dangerous to insist that language is clear. Uh, um, that's that's what uh, dictators employ this as a stick to beat people with. How language is always clear, and and. Compounding these limitations of language are certain realities of the reader. Any hope for a clear apprehension by the reader is scuttled by the inevitable subjectivity of the reception. What we imagine to be a clarity is nothing more than our own construal. That's how I see it. The meaning of any text is never simply and clearly given in the text. It is ever only and self-servingly graven. We make it out to what we want it to be. This you'll recognize, you know, this is the echoes of Nietzsche. Language is used as an instrument of power. Power over another. As a, a Gadamer, the German philosopher, extremely influential in the universities, as, as Gadamer emphasizes, our, our presuppositions and the situatedness of our horizon as readers, in other words, where we are, what we're like as people, the concerns, the interests that we have, our abilities, uh, these all shape the event of understanding. You know, when you come to understand a text, you're bringing all of this freight from who you are and what you can do, what you're interested in, and that's going to affect the interpretation that you give. To imagine we have access to some pristine, clear and distinct meaning in the text is really to remain in the thrall of an outdated and discredited modernist model that somehow our brains just can mirror the realities there. No, 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 no. We're active and we're, we're constructionist as in our engagement with reality and in our engagement with a text. We're constructing it. We're not just absorbing it. Um, uh, so to make such a claim is to be in the strong grip of an illusion as to realities. So there you have it. And these are strong currents, particularly in the academic sensibility. That you, you know, If you're up at the university, you'll hear all these things. Um, to insist upon the Bible's clarity in the teeth of these objections and in the temper of these times seems either quaint, insane, or reactionary. An affirmation doomed to derision. But before we consign clarity to the dustbin of theological atavisms, uh, things going the way of the dinosaur, okay, let's pause, not for a moment of respectful silence at its passing, rather pause for a moment of reflection and reevaluation. For there are a few things to be said 
on its behalf, which may stay the executioner's hand. So, to in defense of clarity. Uh, muse with me for a moment upon first, and perhaps decisively, God's purpose and ability. God's purpose and ability. Consider that the Bible is God's revelation and flows from his, God's, determination to disclose himself. It is God's desire to be known and responded to by his creatures and to do so through the vehicle of his word, the Bible. To claim that his word is hopelessly obscure is to assert God's failure in attaining his object. It is to cast him, God, as an ineffectual communicator. But surely this is absurd. Surely God's word succeeds in its purpose. As God states, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, does not my and does not and does not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what i desire and without succeeding in the matter for which i sent it Furthermore, it is the assumption throughout the Bible that its words are comprehensible and as such entail the moral responsibility to be heeded. He doesn't just utter to no point. He expects that we hear and heed him. Deuteronomy uh, 30 didn't write all these down and my memory is fading. Um, Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it down to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. As Luther remarks, Christ has not so enlightened us as deliberately to leave some part of his word obscure 
commanding us to give heed to it, for he commands us in vain to give heed if he does not give light. You get that? That's from bondage of the will. Again, Luther provocatively asks, and this he's asking Erasmus at this point, who we cited for obscurity, if Scripture, Erasmus, is obscure and equivocal, why need it have been brought down to us by an act of God? Surely we have enough obscurity and uncertainty within ourselves without our obscurity and uncertainty and darkness being augmented by heaven. Yeah, I mean, if the Bible's completely obscure, how is that going to help us? How is that going to bring redemption and salvation? So, consider again the purpose and the ability of God. Think that that has decisive bearing on this topic. At least help us to try to work through some of the tension here. Consider also the testimony of Scripture. And of course, the the critical test for any doctrine is whether it accords with, or, or better, is taught by Scripture. And relevant here would be numerous characterizations as the Scripture as light. Light. Think of that metaphor. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of thy words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. Psalm 36, 9. In thy light we see light. 2 Peter 1.19 speaks of scriptures as a lamp shining in a dark place. And such characterizations are impossible on the premise that the word itself is dark, shadowy, and failing of illumination. Surely there can be no better image for clarity than light, which illumines our darkness. At Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, that Erasmus had cited, the secret of the Lord remains with the Lord. But uh, notice that the secret of the Lord then is contrasted with the word that he has given to us. For the verse goes on, but, so the secret of the Lord remains with the Lord, but what he has revealed That is for us that we may observe all of his works and words, sorry, that we may observe all of his words. Again, there is no reasonable expectation for us to observe what is fundamentally opaque. And as to the contentions about language as an unsuitable medium, it would seem we have reason to think that the opposite is true. Consider the suitability of language. Assertions of language as a barrier to God's successful revelation seem to assume that our language is simply a creaturely phenomenon simply a a human achievement and construction. But this is not so. 
Language is a divine gift. And since this is so, it becomes a bridge, not a barrier. In giving us this gift, God has made us fit speech partners with him. He's wired us for understanding. Remember, God is the first, in the scriptures, God is the first to speak in what would later be considered human words. God is the first speaker. Words are not something alien to God. It's not as if God must somehow commandeer something which is in and of itself unsuitable to the task of communication. And so the allegation, as Bart puts it, that, quote, human language is not, not a suitable but an unsuitable medium for God's self-presentation should, it seems, be rejected. Further, God the Son, in taking human form as part of the incarnation, took human language as his medium of disclosure. Why should God's self-communication be any more distorted by its expression in human words than his compassion is distorted by its expression in human flesh? There's never a hint of a lisp when Jesus speaks about himself or the Father's purpose. You know, it's never, you know, Jesus, ah, this is so frustrating to me. I just, I just can't explain it. Human words are so limited. Never, never, there's never a whisper of anything like that. When people fail to understand, it is always accounted for in other ways. Not that, oh, this language thing, it's such a blunt instrument. No, it's accounted for by hard hearts, the malice of Satan, unbelief, but never the failure of his words. This reality takes us to another relevant consideration. It's all good and well to speak of language as originally a gift of God, rendering it a fit and fruitful vehicle for communication. But what about the fall? What about the fall? If God wired us for understanding, has not sin messed with the circuitry? Yes, it has. The effect of sin upon the understanding is this. In our sinful rebellion and self-centeredness, we do not always like the words we hear. This hardness of heart or stiff-neckedness, if you would call it that, I guess, affects our ability to understand the words which echo in our ears are resisted and so our understanding is darkened. So it does affect 
our understanding. Usually, yeah, yeah, wrong. Yeah, John, when we become Christians, an unbeliever suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Yes. Do Christians do that in their Christian walk? We can. St- we still do that because we have we have ho- so habituated that tendency that even when when God's Spirit, when we're united with Christ, and God's Spirit comes to dwell with us and begins to produce new desires, an affection for what God has said, a conviction that this is for our good, for our flourishing. Uh, but but remember, it's still a little sprout. So we don't spring from, from our spiritual womb fully blown like Venus on a half shell. She's complete. Uh, but it takes a while for, for, for it to, to, to grow. So, so like sanctification would be the growth in those holy desires and in many of the qualities like humility, submission, uh, patience that will help us to appropriate. And we'll get to some of those themes, but very, very apropos. Um, yes. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yes, we've argued that, that our hardness of heart or our stiff neckedness, stiff neckedness, affects our ability to understand. Um, so the words which echo in our ears are resisted, and so our understanding is darkened. Usually, we don't get it because we don't want to get it. Was it man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest? Was that Bob Dylan, I guess? I'm, I try so hard to get these contemporary cultural. I guess barely. Is he alive still? Okay, yeah, all right. right I got one. Con, contemporary culture reference. Man, I'm doing, I'm doing okay this morning. Uh, uh, Human desire deeply affects human understanding. Tainted human desires correspondingly taint human understanding. So this reality does not count against the clarity of Scripture, for the problem is not with the text, it's with the reader. The problem is not with the word, but with the hearer. Do you see? And to argue for clarity, we're, argue, we're, we're talking about a quality of the word. So if we, you know, throw, throw dirt on things, or if we close our eyes, oh, it's, the text isn't clear anymore. Well, you closed your eyes deliberately. Um, and how often have you heard the testimony? You know, I never understood a word of the Bible. But then I gave my life to Christ and its meaning wonderfully opened up to me. Uh, Before, I I couldn't have even been bothered. Now I devour it. Surely you've heard some testimonies, perhaps even experienced that sort of thing. Do do, do, do you see the, 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 the transformation? You know, ah, sudden clarity. What changed? Not the text, not the text, but the reader, the reader. But even if the barrier is not obscurity, but unresponsiveness, this is not an insuperable barrier to almighty power. 
God is not stymied in his purpose to communicate his word, even by our rebellious resistance, which darkens our understanding. Because God exerts effectual power through the Spirit's illumination. Yeah, for the Spirit's illumination. Happily, in understanding His Word, God does not leave us to our own compromised devices. God is present by His Spirit as Revealer. So it's not just text. He shows up in person in His Holy Spirit as Revealer, such that understanding becomes more than a creaturely activity. It is the Spirit's action upon us. The process of understanding repeats the basic motif of Christian existence, which is being drawn out of darkness of sin and turned to the light of the gospel. So being drawn out of the darkness of sin and being turned to the light of the gospel. There's there's the fundamental biblical motif. Scripture is clear, but because what it presents is that to which we must be reconciled, we can discern its clarity only if our darkness is first illuminated. So understanding is therefore not, first of all, an act of clarification of the text, but an event of being ourselves clarified by the Spirit. Okay, that's a little complex, maybe the wording. Let me repeat that slowly. Understanding is not, first of all, an act of clarification of the text, but an event of being ourselves clarified by the Spirit. You remember uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, but to this day, Paul writes, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Isn't that interesting? The veil is over their hearts. So remember, what, 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 was the, what did the heart indicate in Hebrew or biblical idiom? So they're not saying that they're witless, but they're wanton. Okay, it's, it's, it's not chiefly an intellectual issue, but a moral issue. The heart, the affections, where we direct our affections. And the veil is there. That's the problem. That's what needs to be unveiled. Okay. Well, how about when the Lord says, my people perish from lack of knowledge? Mm-hmm. Well, so, yes. And in, in, in that case, they, the knowledge that God has given them have that they have turned their, their, their backs upon, they have spurned it. He has been yelling it in their ear again. The prophets, he sends prophets again and again and again, and they kill the prophets, and then he sends his son. They say, ha, look, it's the son. Let's kill him. 
So in the end, they are without this knowledge that God has sent again and again and again. Why? Did God not send it? Did God not offer it? Did God not give it? Did God not say, hey, it's not up in heaven that you have to climb there. It's not across the sea that you have to swim there. It's right here. And you killed him. And you killed him. You killed me. So similar sort of thing. Yeah, they're, they, they're without knowledge, but why? You know, I can't, I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So yes, you're, you're right to bring that up. But that's not a different phenomenon, really, than what we're than what we're discussing uh, here. Uh, and remember, the, uh, the, and he goes on, illumination really repeats the miracle of creation. Remember, in 2 Corinthians 4, when he, he's, he's speaking now of illumination, and he says, the light has shone in your hearts, in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Here, here how, the, so he's describing basically illumination or, or, or regeneration, and that, that's in 2 Corinthians 3.15, Raul. Um, uh, and and you, you hear the echoes. It, it, it's creation. It, 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 you know, let there be light. <laughs> let there be light. Same, same sort of thing. Uh, so, and, and uh, Ezekiel, too. I mean, we could go on. There, there's so many types. Um, um, affords another example here. Uh, notice language is not the barrier. Um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 3, 4 through 7. This is in, in, in Ezekiel's commission here. Language is not the barrier. Not a matter of unintelligible speech or a difficult language. Rather, not willing to listen. Stubborn, obstinate. See if you can catch it. Let me just read a couple of, catch these themes. Uh, so Ezekiel 3, 4 through 7. And he, God said, uh, and he said to me, son of man, uh, this is God, this is the, the sending, Ezekiel's call, okay? Um, son of man, Ezekiel, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I send you to such they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. <laughs> the theme goes on. But again, hey, we don't have a language, we don't have a language barrier here, not a language problem. We got a heart problem here. Uh, so... Um, So, summing up, because of the purpose and ability of God himself to communicate and the testimony and presumption of Scripture, it doesn't communicate to no point, you can respond, and the prevailing, uh, sorry, and the suitability of the language, of language as God's chosen means, 
and the prevailing illumination of the Spirit, it doesn't leave us to our own devices, to overcome the obstacles of our unresponsiveness. Clarity is a conviction that we do bring to Scripture. We come to Scripture confident of its ability successfully to communicate because of God's ability. Okay, so that's, I want to affirm that that is, I think, a biblical conviction that we can have. Uh, I think that's solid. But some clarifications are in order. Sorry about that. Must be my stock. Um, So, uh, clarity, some clarifications. First, clarity, when, when we uh, affirm, and our tradition is affirmed the clarity of Scripture, when we affirm that, we are not saying, we are not claiming that exposition or interpretation is unnecessary. Indeed, exposition, okay, or ex- is, is only possible on the assumption that a meaning is accessible. <laughs> um, think of the situation of the Ethiopian, you know, in, in Acts 8 that, that we referenced. Uh, the fact that Philip instructed him does not imply he was, as one has put it, commenting on this passage, lost in a sea of possibilities because of the text's obscurity. No, his, the Ethiopians, was a confession of personal inadequacy to be remedied by someone with a better grasp of Scripture's content. Not an assertion of the essential obscurity of the subject matter. I mean, really, if you look at it, the problem was one of reference. Who is this person that's spoken of here? Who is he speaking of? And God has also supplied teachers gifted in exposition, which are among the means available to us to help us to understand. As the Westminster Confession expresses, clear, quote, Scripture being clear, in the due use of ordinary means. That is, there needs to be the due use of certain means that God provides that that are, that are ordinary, that are at hand for us to use. Like reading? Like reading, like looking at a commentary, like coming to a class, like yeah, all, all of these, these ordinary means, uh, talking to one another, study, reflection, meditation. These are the ordinary means that are, that are at hand for us all if we apply ourselves. Uh, so... Uh, they would, they, you know, Westminster Convention affirms clear, the Bible is clear, in the due use of ordinary means. And those ordinary means include exposition, Bible study, personal and corporate engagement of that word. So, so that, that clarification. Okay. Second, uh, clarity does not imply uniform simplicity or transparency of every text of Scripture. Okay? Sometimes, 
Scripture's clarity is hard won. <laughs> hard won. The result, in part, of diligent labor. 2 Timothy 2.7 enjoins, Paul's telling Timothy, think hard about these things that I say or write to you. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We, we, we ought to be careful to imagine that if the Lord gives me understanding, oh, Lord, just give me understanding, that he's going to give you understanding independently of thinking hard about these things. Probably his gift of understanding is a sustaining diligence for you to keep your nose on the page and work, work at it. It's not going to be woo, probably some poof, zap or wand thing, but he will sustain these diligent fruits, these fruits of the Spirit with diligent application to help you to understand. If you go off Scripture in your mind, the Spirit will remind pull you. Yeah, you pull you. Exa- exactly, exactly. You have to be in tune with Scripture to know what's in Scripture, so when you're thinking away from Scripture, it brings you back to the Scripture. A- absolutely, yeah. Uh, Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction of righteousness. Doctrine, what the path is. Reproof, showing you if you've gotten off it. Correction, putting you back on the path. And instruction in righteousness, how to stay on that path. So excellent. Yeah, excellent. Could you say, John, that in the Psalms, David's imploring God to give understanding, to give insight, and really more... Not an intellectual quest, but a desire for intimacy. Well, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure that that's part of it, and he and he, and he realizes that there, there's this there's this wonderful dialectic of our, our longing to his longing to understand God's word was uh, not just to try to gather up and get his precepts so he can put more of his, store away more of his precepts. It was the person behind the precepts. So you're right to connect some of our motive with a desire for intimacy with God. Who are you? What are you like? What do you want? Uh, so yes, it, 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 it very much does. So we want to press through the precepts to the person. Um, so absolutely, absolutely. Um, so think hard, Timothy. Your understanding will require hard work. It's why he tells Timothy a few verses later, be diligent that you may handle accurately the word of truth. Second Timothy 2.15. So it's in this context that we might consider Peter's remark about Paul's writings. Remember in 2 Peter 3.16, speaking of our good brother Paul's writings, there are some things in them hard to understand, (laughs) Uh, Peter says of Paul. Now, Peter is not saying that their meaning cannot be discerned, simply that at certain points it will take concentrated effort. And I think that that's what some of us have found. Is that like the difference between a doctor who goes to high school, college, medical school, a residency and a fellowship, and a person that just reads a first aid book? 
Yeah, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of times, and you're, you're, you're going to realize... has the deep stuff. That's right. And the, the expectation that he would be able to arrive at, at, at insight in his diagnosis or, or skill in his operation is going to be much more than, a, you know, a walk-on. You know, I, I don't want to walk on doing my heart, open heart surgery. You know, it's, it's just not uh, absolute. There you go. You didn't act that, think that way for a doctor. Now think about eternal things. Yeah. Your pastor, your teachers, your elders. I mean, they give us really important information. It has to do with eternal life. Yeah, yeah. And, and not just, you know. Yeah. That, that, that's, I think, why some of the qualifications for these offices like elder aren't flippant. flippant. No. They're, 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 pretty, they're pretty deliberate and thoughtful. And a lot of it has to do with that, what is distinct of the qualification of the elder versus, say, a deacon. It, you know, isn't, well, the, the deacon... Get, can get drunk a few times and the elder just a little bit less, you know, you know, you know but um, capable, as, as Titus says, capable of exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict, having a firm grasp of the mysteries, firm grasp. So that's, yes, you're absolutely right. Those, those are the, the, the qualifications. Um, uh, notice that Peter's remarks here also assume that a proper meaning can be identified and contrasted with distortions put forward by the untaught and the unstable. Because in this very passage, remember, some things are difficult to understand of Paul's writings, which perverse men distort to their own destruction. There'd be no meaningful way to to define or distinguish distortion from understanding if there were not some sort of clarity about an understanding. You, you know, you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't have that. Um, so uh, the fact is that clarity is often hard won through diligence. Uh, and that doesn't mean that there's no clarity. doesn't mean that there's no clarity. And, you know, um, think, think about uh, Jesus's, you know, when he tells the Pharisees. Maybe there was somebody uh, in uh, Matthew 9, or, yeah, uh, where he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So he's, he, they knew that stuff. He say, go and learn. In other words, think about it. Work through this. You haven't got it yet. Something missing, go think about this. Um, and sometimes in the scripture, this is, this is a heuristic uh, device where, where true, a heuristic, uh, a device that helps us to actually gain understanding. Okay, sometimes things are put forward that just right on the surface, they seem to be incompatible. How, did, how could this work? Okay, uh, it, it, their clarity is not immediately evident, but that's the whole point, to get you to puzzle and, 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 and go deeper. So, for example, the, the wisdom literature does this all the time. In, um, uh, in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, you know, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And then in the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you think... Oh, good, good. Far from it being clear, this is, 
this is manifestly contradictory. Ah, look, the Bible's not clear. No, no, no. The point is to not just glide over this thing at, at 30,000 feet. But, but what's going on here? Ah, then you're actually really engaging with the word. Yeah, yeah, Tyler. Think about God's transcendence in the scripture. Like he's a king above all authority and exalted. But then he says God is near to the broken heart. He's Wonderful. Like, <laughs> God is near to the broken heart. He's also exalted above us. And, and well, great example. God is the same way. Yeah. God is a one of a kind God. There you go. That's, by definition, that is absolutely true. <laughs> That's right. And yet, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an invitation, some of these things. Don't throw up your hands and say, oh, this is impenetrable. No, it's an invitation. Come, come in deeper. Come up higher. It's an invitation. Um, uh, uh, third, uh, clarity does not imply that Every text will always be familiar to us. That will immediately go, oh, I, 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 I get what's going on here. There, 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 there are some things that just may seem really, really strange. I remember as a little boy, you know, reading through Acts and, uh, you know, Paul cutting his hair and taking a vow, thinking, what's up with that? I was puzzling over that for a while. I think I had to ask my dad. Um, it just seemed really strange. I didn't know what the customer was. I didn't know what he was, what he was doing. You know, what, you would take a vow when you cut your hair. What they, you know, should have gone back to the Nazarenes. And I could have done it if I would have stick to, stuck with Scripture a little bit more. I could have probably clarified some of these things. But yeah, a lot of it's strange. And, and God's Word will not simply affirm or confirm all that we already intuitively know and feel. It will radically change and challenge our perspectives. And so it may at first strike, at first strike us as a very alien word. Okay? For it does not simply echo our own perspectives and cultural preoccupations. But this does not count against its clarity. It simply attests to, to our conceptual and moral distance from God and our desperate need to be surprised and corrected and tuned by it. Yeah, it's, um, yeah some of the strange stuff. I remember there's a little, little boy reading Isaiah and you, you know, where, where it talks about all these partiers and revelers and, and, and then it says the jaws of hell open up and down they go to chants of praise to God. And to me, you know, I could smell the sulfur and it just seemed so grisly an image. And I think this is to the praise of the glory of God? Yep. Yep. To the praise of his justice. To the praise of his goodness. Well, just because that felt alien, you know, to a six-year-old doesn't mean that the scripture is not clear, <laughs> was clear about that. It just seemed alien. I needed, I needed to be retuned. I needed to adjust my sensibilities uh, bring them in line with what God revealed. Um. For me, it was, for I am a jealous God. 28 years ago, I said, how could God yeah. jealousy? <laughs> right. Jealousy's bad. That's right. And then I had to be straightened out. That's right. You got married and you thought, ooh, I know what this feels like. <laughs> this is a good thing. <laughs> Boundaries in place. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, and, and indeed, its strangeness is actually part of its clarity. Because its strangeness, again, is clarifying us. It has a clarifying function for us to remove our cloudiness. Uh, so it's not an obstacle to overcome. So fourth, and, um, so th- and, and this one's a really important insight. I mean, this is really helpful to, to, to me. Um, clarity does not imply that our comprehension is the only outcome. Okay, we might think that if it's clear that the only outcome should be my comprehension. If I don't comprehend, uh, uh, you know, finally, that means it wasn't clear. No, clarity does not imply that our comprehension is the only outcome. It is not the sole function of God's word to bring illumination. It also, at times, can operate as an instrument of judgment. It was so with God's word spoken to Isaiah. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now, Jesus took this very passage upon his lips in Mark 4, 4, 12, and applied it to how his words, Jesus' words, functioned for some hearers. To the hard-hearted, marked by unbelief, his words bring judgment. They produce their effect not being understood and heeded. So sometimes the words function, it functions as an instrument of life. Sometimes they are death dealing. That is, they seal rebellion that is already present and culpably present. They seal a rebellion that's 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 culpably already present. As Paul would write of the words of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 2.16, to one, an aroma of death to death, to another, an aroma from life to life. But again, these clear, life-giving words become the occasion for confusion and incomprehension, not because the words lack clarity or lack light, but rather because the wicked heart preference for darkness. And this is the judgment, that the light, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil, John 3, 19. It's not that it's not light. The light comes in, but the light ends up being judgmental for all that that step into the, turn their back on it and step into the darkness. They want to remain in the darkness. And the word was so effectual. Does that make sense? 
I know it sounds a little, little odd that sometimes the aim is not really comprehension. The aim is to seal judgment. And the word is still clear and effectual. And finally, uh, clarity uh, does not imply plenary perspicuity. It, it doesn't mean that every last bit of scripture is easy to grasp. It doesn't imply that. It's, um, it's, it's, it's neither the case nor the claim of clarity that all things in Scripture are clear in themselves. An, an absolute claim. We're not making an absolute claim that reformers never were. An absolute claim leaving no room for real and persistent difficulty with particular passages. None of the reformers ever meant it that way. No, clarity... Affirm, aff, that, that we affirm, and that the reformers affirmed, is not the denial that some bits are independently obscure. It relates to the message as a whole, the gospel particularly. We are able to grasp all that is needed to trust and obey, to respond to God through his word in faith and repentance. As we have said, clarity relates to the intended effect of God's word, which is salvific. It's salvific. And salvation is a broad category. You know, it's sanctification. It's, it's salvific. Rightly understood, the clarity of Scripture is not so much a category of epistemology, that is like knowing things, but it's a category primarily of redemption. Clarity of Scripture is primarily a category of redemption. Okay. Its clarity is its efficacy. Its efficacy. Its soteriological efficacy. It's, it is able to save to the uttermost. Okay. Uh, as uh, the Westminster Confession reads, or I could do it in these quarters, well, as the London Baptist Confession of 1689 <laughs> reads, quote, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Okay, did, you, did you get that? Um, it's a good, good expression of the, of the doctrine. Okay, I'll, let me just read it one more, one more time. So, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Some gifted, others less so. We lean on each other. It's a corporate endeavor. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation, soteriological primary category, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place in the Scripture. Again, you might find a little bit that's difficult, but you take the whole thing together let, let, let the clear illuminate the more obscure. Okay? In some parts of Scripture, some places of Scripture, that not only the learned, 
don't need to have all of these degrees for the word to be effectual to you. Not only the learned, but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means. Again, some of the ordinary means, when they say unlearned, you know, they're not talking about complete, you know, illiterate, what you can read it to you. This is why the reformers always were, hey, teach everybody to be able to read because you've got to be able to read the scripture. That was one of the earliest laws in the books in the New England colonies. Um, uh, they call it the Satan spoiler law, uh, which we're going to teach everybody to read so they can read the Bible. There you have it, Satan. You know, was, I mean, it was just, you know, in your, you know. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, so... This is a good expression. Um, So similarly, the Irish Articles of Religion, 1615. Although there be some hard things in the scriptures, yet all things necessary to be known unto everlasting salvation are clearly delivered therein. And nothing of that kind is spoken under dark mysteries in one place, which is not in other places spoken more familiarly and plainly to the capacity both of the learned and the unlearned. So you, you kind of see these themes. We could go down through all the, the, the Protestant confessions of faith, and we have that. So, in conclusion and commission, simply put, okay, if you go away with just one, two-word phrase, Scripture succeeds. Scripture succeeds. It is functional. It's not dysfunctional. Scripture is not dysfunctional. Okay? It is, as we are told in 2 Timothy 3.16, it is profitable. It is able to fully equip the believer and supremely able to make us wise unto salvation. It comes with sufficient clarity for us to discern its meaning and to respond accordingly. As Moses told the people of God in reference to the word of God, it is not beyond you, Deuteronomy 30. So... Don't despair. Don't despair. Okay, you open it up, you start reading it. Oh, it's kind of hard. Not, you know, cookies aren't always on the lowest shelf. Don't despair. Okay? This, is, this has been historically the Roman Catholic tendency. Okay? If the Bible seems daunting and impenetrable, don't be discouraged. Go for it. What God has revealed is for you. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Read it. Read it. Says, says Paul to Timothy, even as a youth, even as a very young man, through scriptures, he had become convinced. That is, he formed convictions out of the Bible, even as a young, as a youth, okay? Um, it, it, it communicated truth clearly, and Timothy formed convictions, And convictions aren't possible without clarity. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall gather for the battle? You know? uh, We need to have a pattern in our life of reading and reflecting and responding to Scripture. And sometimes our convictions will be the result of assiduous study. Convictions like clarity are at times hard won. But don't despair. Press on. Your labor is not in vain. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, And in this ambition, 
Make full use of the blessings, rich blessings that God has afforded you. Good preaching, gifted teaching, godly commentary, spiritually uplifting books, uh, godly practices. You know, as we're humble, as we're patient. These are, these are what are called epistemic virtues. There are certain qualities. You know, the, the humble God shall show his way. Cultivate these things. Um, and don't despise. Okay, this is the Protestant tendency historically. Uh, private judgment, isolation, okay, uh, me and my Bible, it's all that I need for growth and godliness. But don't despise God's rich gifts. If I just take my Bible and go into a corner and that's it, and I don't draw on you all and these, these gifts that God has given me in the body of Christ. Cloud of witnesses, that's right. You know, you go back, the Augustines, uh, Catherine of Siena, you know, you, the Luther, yeah, all of them. I'm despising his gifts. I'm just leaving them wrapped under the Christmas tree. From God. No, open it up, take, take them out. Um, um, you know, it's not solo scripture, me and the Bible. It's sola scriptura. It means something different. We'll talk about that maybe on Reformation Day. I, we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, we need to take advantage of the community of faith the varied gifting within the body. So don't despise that. That's, that's the times of Protestant tendency. So let's approach the scriptures with confidence, concentration, and community. For God has something to say to us and we need to hear it. And be of good cheer, for through the word, he is very good at saying it. And we need to hear it. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and catch this next word, don't miss it, able. Able. The scripture is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12. Um, Ooh, we went on for a long time. Okay, I'm just dying. You, this is so inspiring. Um, yeah, we got a No, no, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about this next thing that I'm about to read. Okay, no, I, I won't read it. Okay, sometime, go back, go back and read Martin Luther's a preface to his Latin works where he talks about his breakthrough. And you could say the Reformation under the, under the, the, the sovereignty of God came as a result of the insight of a student of Scripture, Martin Luther. And he talks about how he'd, he'd come to this place in Paul and says, good news. Wait, the gospel is good news? You've just told me then, in the next word, that the wrath of God abides on us. How could the righteousness of God that you announce as good news be good news? The righteousness of God, good news. You've got to be kidding me. That means your inclination as a righteous God to judge and punish all those who are unrighteous. How can that be good news? It's just not clear, doggone it. And he said, I longed to understand what Paul could mean that the righteousness of God is good news. 
I, I, and and I, he says, I battered at this place day and night, seeking with prayers and tears to understand what the apostle could mean. And he goes on to, I mean, he worked hard at this. And he said, oh, and then I perceived. And it's just a wonderful little bit. It, it clarifies this, this gospel. That, 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 I can't go into it now, but it's just, it's just wonderful. And he said, it was as if the gates of paradise opened before me. Everything, the whole face of scripture changed for me. I read that in his commentary to Romans. Well, it's often put there. He makes a reference to it, but, but actually he wrote that uh, in his preface to his Latin works. So, but it is commenting on Romans. So that's if you, if you, if you find it. Um, I, I should stop. I've gone a long, long time. Uh, comments, questions? Sorry, sometimes just, just get, gets to stick to Yes? Um, what occurs to me as you're speaking is the current social and political research known as confirmation bias. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we as human beings attach yeah. ourselves to an opinion. We kind of bond to it. Yeah, and yeah. Any new information, the facts that are presented to us, we undervalue the yes. ones that contradict our opinion. Yep. And, um, and hold tight to the... Yes, yes, excellent. Confirm it. So it's just like human, even if, aside from scripture, <laughs> any truth. Yeah, yeah. We tend to reject if it, if it contradicts. Because we want that comfort, yeah, exactly. right, yeah. of just having our opinion be correct. Yeah, yeah. And it gets worse. Yeah, some, of the, some of the research most recently, uh, when they, uh, uh, they, they, they took, a, they took a, a chart and it was, um, and they gave it to thousands, thousands of people, okay? And it was, um, uh, what is the effect of um, uh, using ointment on itchiness of your skin? Just a simple graph. The more ointment, less itch. Boop. Easy to, you know, just, just one thing. And everybody understood it. Then they took the exact same graph, the exact same graph, just changed the title. Just said, what is this graph of? It's a relation of gun control to gun violence. And, and boom, the interpretations were completely polarized depending upon your political background. Confirmation bias. Man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. But here's the kicker that ought to be really scary in a room like this as I'm looking around. The more education you had, the more you were able to rationalize your view and take reality and twist it and tug it way far away from what it said. So we are particularly, th- those, those who, among us who might be learned or, or skilled or gifted, we have an even greater propensity to just twist the truth. So we need to be really, really careful about that. Now, one of the, one of the ways is, what challenges my hardened heart? The scriptures, supremely. This was that last verse. You know, dividing sharp two-edged sword, laying bare uh, that, and then one another. I try to find as many thoughtful people that I can who disagree with me most vehemently. And I try to be with them as much of the time as I can who think my views are absolutely absurd. That's why I hang out with Roel every once in a while. He thinks my views are absolutely absurd. Um, and and, and it, it, it hopefully challenges. So you know, if we use some of the gifts, God knows that we are that way. He remembers that we are but dust. So he gives us each other 
to challenge and, and, and help us. Yeah, yeah, I have to keep telling myself to hold the door open. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 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 All right, team, we should probably call it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, next week, we're, I think we're on again next week. I think it's Tom. You guys are in luck. <laughs> it's Tom.